This is taken from Exodus 33. Then the Lord says to Mo, said to Moses, leave this place, you and the people you brought up out of Egypt and go to the land I promised an oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, I will give it to your descendants. I will send an angel before you and drive out the Canaanites, Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go with you because you are a stiff-necked people and I might destroy you on the way. When the people heard this distress, these distressing words, they began to mourn and no one put on any ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, tell the Israelites you are a stiff-necked people. If I were to go with you, even for a moment, I might destroy you. Now take off your ornaments and I will decide what to do with you. So the Israelites stripped off their ornaments at Mount Horeb. Now Moses used to take a tent and pitch it outside the camp before, some distance away, calling it the tent of meeting. Anyone inquiring of the Lord would go to the tent of meeting outside the camp. And whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people rose and stood at the entrances of their tents, watching Moses until he entered the tent. As Moses went into the tent, the, pil the pillar of cloud would come down and stay at the entrance while the Lord spoke with Moses. Whenever the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance to the tent, they all stood and worshiped, each at the entrance of their, to their own tent. The Lord would speak to Moses face to face as one speaks to a friend. Then Moses would return to the camp, but his young aide Joshua, son of Nun, did not leave the tent. Moses said to the Lord, you have been telling me, Lord, these people, lead these people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. The Lord said, I know you by name and you have found favor with me. If you are pleased with me, teach me your ways so I may know you and continue to find favor with you. Remember that this nation is your people. The Lord replied, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. Then Moses said to him, if your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very things you have asked because I am pleased with you and I know you by name. Then Moses said, now show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. Then the Lord said, there's a place near me where you may stand on a rock. When my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand and you will see my back, but my face must not be seen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Joe. Hey, friends, good morning. And my name is Mark. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, I'm just really glad that you are here. Thanks for cutting your spring break vacation one day short. For those on the podcast, we'll see you next week. But for you guys that are here, you did it. So glad you're here. Or sorry that you weren't able to go on vacation. Um, but we're here. Hey, so in two months... My wife, Allison, and I are going to celebrate our nine-year wedding anniversary. We started dating when I was 19. 
Um, so we've been together pretty much my entire adult life, and she's just the best. Am I, am I right? You guys that know Allison, that's right. Yeah, we all know that. Everything, every good thing that's happened to me, no surprise, in the past 11 plus years, she's either been there physically right there with me, or she's been the first person that I've told. But you know, she's got stuff going on. Uh, there are some weekends where she does leave me at home, and, uh, and I'm a bachelor again, um, and life is just a little bit grayer when she's not around. You guys know the, know the feeling. By the end of the weekend, I look back and I find that either everything I've done is I've either just worked the whole time, which is sad enough in itself, or I haven't done, really done anything. You know, I haven't been able to sleep. For those of you who maybe follow her on social media, you know that sleeping is not a problem for me, but I usually fall asleep within about five seconds when she's around, but when she's gone, I'm just like everybody else. I can't sleep. I haven't been eating well. There's Taco Bell wrappers all over the house. And I haven't wanted to do, do anything fun, really, because it just isn't the same when she's not around. I just get sad, and then I'm like a little puppy waiting for her when she gets home. I'm just so happy that she's back. Life just isn't the same without her presence. And presence matters. I was rereading re Exodus 33 this morning in the Pew Bibles, and presence, P, is is actually capitalized in the NIV version that we have. Presence matters. And I want to ask us this question this morning. What a life where God gives you friends and security and possessions, all of those that you hope for, but he withholds his presence from you be enough. If God offered you a life where everything you had, he would give you, except for his presence wouldn't be there would that be enough for you? I want to explore that together this morning. So we've been in the Exodus for the last couple of months, and uh, we just actually have a few weeks left. It's been a great, um, great time together. Last week, Jeremy did the second part of the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, and now we've jumped all the way up to chapter 33. So I would be a bad preacher if I didn't tell you what happened between the last 12 chapters. So after Moses gave the Ten Commandments, uh, was given the Ten Commandments, God affirms his covenant with the people and tells them that he's going to go before them into the land that he's promised them, and that he's going to drive out their enemies. And then uh, in the chapters leading up to Exodus 32, God is actually giving Moses the detailed ceremonial and uh, just governing laws that they're going to need to continue with his presence and thrive on their way and then into the land that they're going to. And then in chapter 32, right before we picked up here, we learn that the people are growing tired of how long Moses is on the mountaintop with God. He's been up there for a long time. And so they and Aaron decide to go and make a golden calf, an idol to worship instead. So God had just said, don't make an, don't make an idol. He came, Moses came down and gave him those commandments. He goes, up to, goes back up to the mountain and he's gone for too long and the people make an idol. And it's a striking account of just how quickly God's people can turn from him, even after seeing such incredible and magnificent displays of his glory, they, they turn so quickly. Um, so Exodus 32 says that Joshua, Moses' aide, hears a commotion happening at the camp. So they run back down. They think they're getting attacked. And then he finds the people worshiping an idol under the leadership of Aaron, his right-hand man. Moses' right-hand man leads the people straight into idolatry. And then we see that the Lord and Moses are so filled with anger at the people's sin, and God judges the people right there. It's a striking chapter. The calf is destroyed. A couple of thousand people die. And God actually sends a plague onto his people, which is just this haunting callback 
of the plagues he had just sent on their Egyptian enemies like a couple months before. So that's where we pick up, Exodus 33, with Moses and God talking about what is going to happen next. In this chapter, we encounter what it looks like for a rebellious and broken people to both feel their separation of God and to prayerfully encounter his redeeming presence. So for you noties out there, here's, here's, what, here's our main idea today. We live in our identity as renewed worshipers as we discover the paradox of his presence by prayerfully seeking his glory. We live in our identity as renewed worshipers as we discover the paradox of his presence by prayerfully seeking his glory. So first, the paradox of his presence. Another question for you. Do you ever feel that you both like can't live with God and you can't live without him? That's the paradox we find Moses and the people navigating here. They can't live with God and they can't live without him. So first, they can't live with him. I I honestly think that one of the reasons the people rebelled and made their own God while Moses was on the mountain was that they felt these laws and demands that he had already given them so heavily that they were just too much to handle. They couldn't live with them. The The glorious presence of God, it can be crushing and overwhelming at times. He demands so much from his people. Even if that demand is, as Jeremy noted last week, those laws that are for their good and for their thriving, they are still overwhelming and crushing at times. And perhaps you too, like the Israelites, have slipped at times so deep into your own sinfulness and brokenness that you can hardly stand the thought of God. You can't live with him. At your best, you see God's radiant goodness in light of your dark rebellion but at worst, you feel so deeply judged and condemned by his otherness that it's too much to even think about. Can't live with him. And it's in this context as Israel um, feels the distance of God and then comes face to face with his justice and his judgment that God gives Moses and the people what I honestly think is a pretty good offer for them. He still gives them everything they ever wanted. And he'll even send an angel before them to wipe out their enemies. He's like, I got you, but I will not be there. I'm going to withhold my presence. And the reason that he won't be there, because they are so stubborn and so rebellious and so disobedient that it might cause God to wipe them out in a moment if he continued with them for any longer. He had by cloud and fire been with them since they left Egypt, but their unwillingness to follow him and obey his commands is actually about to end with God wiping them off the face of the earth. Moses talks them out of it, it seems, in Exodus 32. He says, I'm just going to start over. And this is Moses interceding and saying, no, Lord, these are your chosen people. Be merciful to us. But my question is that would you take that deal? God has given you everything you wanted. He won't destroy you and everyone you love. And the trade-off is, that his presence won't be accessible to you. I'm honestly surprised at the Israelites' response here. Like I figured that they were going to jump at this deal. They keep failing us over and over again, but they are so stubborn and so rebellious and so foolish at times. But then I'm surprised that they hear this offer and they find it so distressing. They throw off all of their jewelry and ornaments and they instantly begin to mourn. The thought of losing the presence of God who just, by the way, sent a plague on them. Like they're still recovering from this plague that that the Lord has sent on them. 
he, it is, the thought of losing his presence is so devastating that they fall into mourning at the thought of, just the thought of his presence leaving them. Because they can't live without him. They can't live with him, but they cannot live without him. That paradox, can't live with God, can't live without him. It's something I feel, one second here, sorry. We're good. That paradox, can't live with him, can't live without him, is so, it's something I feel so deeply in myself. And I think what this passage shows us is that both sides of that paradox are so true that we only begin to experience the fullness of his presence when we navigate both sides of this, both sides of it. Have you ever felt like the Israelites did when Moses was away on the mountain for what seemed like forever, that God drops this like set of rules and requirements and standards on you? And that he's, and though he's felt present in your life before, and there have been seasons where you felt his presence, now he feels distant and it feels as though he almost doesn't have time for you. In the periods of my life where I felt so done with Christianity, like so overwhelmed by my sinfulness, by my inability to keep God's standards, even, even when I want to keep them myself, like the further I walk into the extreme of the can't live with him side of the spectrum, the deeper I find myself coming out on the side of can't live without him. I can't walk away. I love him too much. I've only ever really been known truly and wholly by God and loved by him. And he's my nearest and most faithful friend. It's like this paradox is, is, is similar to the way that we experience the sun right? It is so powerful and magnificent and glorious and overwhelming that we can't even look at it. We can't be exposed to it for too long. Some of you can't even walk outside without getting singed, right? You can't get too close to it. We can barely exist in the sun's presence. And yet we can't live without it. It's our source of heat and light and life itself. Without it, our solar system spins out of control and we instantly freeze in the darkness of space. We are both consumed by the sun's glory and yet we can't exist without it. I think of the words of Peter in John 6 when Jesus asks him if he's going to leave, uh, when many of his disciples have been leaving him in John 6. And Peter responds, if we left, where else would we go? You, Jesus, have the words of eternal life. Or David in Psalm 139, when he says, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. Moses, he refuses to go on without the presence of the Lord. The people as well, they had seen his power, his presence, and his glory. And they couldn't stand a world without him. They couldn't live with him and they couldn't live without him. Do you know your need for his presence so greatly and that your situation without him is so dire that there's no deal you would take where his presence isn't at the forefront? And you might even ask yourself this question, is like, have I known his presence? Like, have I known the presence of God? Is it available to me? And so that moves us into our next Next part here, which is prayerfully seeking his glory. How do we navigate the paradox? What's the way towards finding resolution in that tension? There has to be a resolution here, and it is to prayerfully seek his glory. When Moses ex experiences the decline of God's favor for the people, his response is to devote himself to prayer. He seeks the presence of God by meeting him and talking to him 
uh, as somebody actually talks to a friend, Exodus is kind of a wild book. Like it's, you know, we, it's, it's in the Bible. It's good. Like, but it's kind of crazy. And even, even the thought of these thousands upon thousands, maybe millions of people, depending how you, how you look at it, navigating around the desert and having no place to go that the analyst in me, like that gives me a lot of anxiety. Like, what are they going to do for food and logistics and who's in charge? Like it's a whole, it's a whole problem here, but it is, that is not the craziest thing about this book. I might dare say that the craziest thing about the book isn't even the miracles, maybe the parting of the Red Sea, but one of the wild wildest things here is that Moses would be able to approach the God of the universe and he talks to him like a friend. Like that is so shocking in the book of Exodus out of, after everything that's happened. And then Moses, who, you know, mixed feelings about sometimes, Moses then asks him to see his glory. He's like, you're my friend, but I also, Lord, I want to see your glory. He's so bold in this. And Moses responds to the tension of God's presence by praying for more of his glory. That's how Moses approaches the tension. And then we can, like Moses, come to the Lord and petition for his presence and beg for his glory because Jesus is our way into God's presence. Jesus is the one who resolves that paradox of his presence for us, not being able to live with him and not being able to live without him. It is by Jesus that as we embrace the paradox, we pray for his glory. And then it's by his spirit, by his Holy Spirit, that we are able to know God more fully and experience his presence with us. You see, while our sin and our rebellion condemns us so completely that we can't live with God's presence, Jesus himself stands in our place to cover up our sins and give us access to the Father. Paul describes it like this in Romans 8. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus died. More than that, he was raised to life. And he's at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Moses here is a kind of prototype of Jesus because he is interceding. That is, he is praying on behalf of the people. And now we too can approach the throne of God like Moses did because Jesus himself is praying on our behalf to the Father. And so then with Jesus as our advocate, with our access to the Father being made available by him, this passage, I think, encourages us to keep praying Keep praying. Moses continues to pester God until he gives him what he and the people ultimately want. And that is his presence and his glory. Not just his blessings, his presence and his glory. I actually get the sense that the conversation that we read in Exodus 33 took place over a long period of time. Um, During that time when Moses was coming to and from the tent, speaking with God, like we see it pretty quickly in like a dialogue in in our Bibles. But I get the sense that it took, it took some time for each one of those things with the Lord to come out. Prayer takes time. Renewal takes time. Revival takes time. We got a, we got a sketch, a sketch up here. This is one of Jeremy's most well-known sketches. Um, he stole it from a guy named Mark Sayers, so don't give him too much credit, but uh, it shows, uh, we've, we've looked at this a few different times. Um, it shows the cycle of renewal and revival. Uh, this story of the Israelites is actually one of the classic revival passages in scripture and is, is one of the basis for, for this diagram. And I want to jump to the bottom here. If you see that in the, in the depths of decline and discontent, that's when the faithful prayers of God's people are heard. Moses and the people are contending in prayer. Moses is almost like fighting with God in prayer here. 
And it makes me a little bit uncomfortable with that, how bold he is with God. And as I dig into my uncomfortability with Moses' boldness, I find that I'm uncomfortable because I don't pray like that. And I think that I don't pray like that because I'm a little terrified of what will happen if I pray for the deepest longings of my heart. What if God doesn't answer and I'm stuck, denied of his presence, denied of the flourishing that I desire or denied of the blessing I want for someone else? And even more terrifyingly than a no, I think I don't pray to see God's glory because I'm stuck on the side of the paradox, believing that I can't live with that. I can't live with it. I'm afraid of what it might demand of me, the changes that it would bring, the dismantling of the worldviews that I have right now that an encounter with God's, a deeper encounter with God's presence and glory would certainly bring in my life. But to seek renewal, we need to keep praying. Pray, prayer is central to the cycle of renewal that we've been talking about. Praying for a transformed life. Praying for God's presence. Praying for the lost and the suffering and the complacent. Praying for your church. Praying, praying for this body. And like we did this morning, praying for the nations. And praying that we as a people then would be renewed as worshipers. Take the slide down. So that's, that's our next point here is renewed worshipers. As we pray for his presence, we are actually compelled to worship because God's glory demands it. And because we were created to worship. Listen to how the people respond to the manifest presence of God in verse 10. Whenever the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance to the, whenever the, pillar, the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance to the tent, they all stood and worshiped each at the entrance of their tent. We talk a lot here about the goal of starting this church, um, and it's not to do something different or to do something new, but to recover the masterpiece of Christ's church. We, we use this, this metaphor a lot. So nations in times of war, they'll paint over their most treasured masterpieces with, with a much lesser work. And that way they can hide it from their invaders. And then after the threat is gone, they will meticulously spend time chipping away the older, lesser work to uncover the true masterpiece beneath. And I think that when we, as God's chosen people today, seek his glory in prayer, we begin to recover our true identity as worshipers of God. You can take this slide down now too. So when we peel away the layers of our individualism, and our consumerism, our addiction, frankly, our narcissism, we discover that we are at our core worshipers. I mean, look at the Israelites. Left to their own devices, they remained worshipers. They merely just changed the, ga- the, the object of their gaze to something else, to a new object of worship. We are no different. We were made to be worshipers. But my question for us is, do we live in our true identity as worshipers of the one true God? Martin Lloyd-Jones has a book on revival and he says this, the issue with our prayers for renewal is that they focus on the wrong things and forget God's glory. We start with ourselves and our needs and problems. And God is an agency to supply an answer, to give us what we need, but it is all wrong. Everything must start with God and his glory. 
the God who is over all and to whom all things belong, it is because men are not glorifying him that they need to be saved, not to have some little personal problem solved. You might also ask yourself, what is the ultimate goal of my life with Jesus? Is it mental health, community, finding meaning, feeling loved? Listen, I am the biggest fan in the room of all those things. But if they don't lead us to deeper worship, is our pursuit of these things really uncovering our identity as worshipers of God, our true identity as his worshipers? If not, I think we need to ask the same question that Moses asked of God in verse 15. He says, it says, then Moses said to him, if your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? And he says, what will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? If we don't have that presence, what will distinguish us? How are we any different? Jesus offers us so many gifts in life, resting in our belovedness. Big fan of that. Community of believers. I'm the community guy here, right? A purpose in his kingdom. He gives us all those gifts. Yet I rarely ask myself how these gifts are leading me to become a better worshiper. How are these gifts leading you to become a better worshiper? Instead, we spend so much of our lives focusing, at least I do, on maximizing my own happiness and security, but not really on worship. How do the gifts of Jesus lead you to worship? That is what the Lord desires of us, and it's what we were created for. See, because a posture of worship seeks to express our deep love and thankfulness to a God who bridged the paradox of his presence for us with Jesus. Prayerfully seeking his glory leads to a life of worship that longs for God's presence. And that presence which compels us to worship is what makes us a distinct people, a chosen people. Is that your view of the church, of a community of faith? But if I can ask another real honest question here, are we a group of people that merely want to lead respectable and comfortable lives in the world? Or are we distinct? Because the Spirit's presence is reviving our identity as worshipers of the one true God. So there's three things that I want to encourage us with as we close. First, keep praying. Great Mav City song, great truth. Keep praying. Renewal and revival come from what Paul calls laboring in prayer. Paul literally calls it laboring. Do work in prayer. I think that prayer feels like so much work because we are stepping in to the heavy and at times overwhelming presence of God. But his weightiness is also what transforms us. Just know that when you pray, it's like, this is hard. Like, why is it hard? Because you are stepping into the presence of God. It's weighty. It's transformative. It's not going to be easy all the time. And second then, embrace the paradox. Prayer can feel weighty and laborious because on account of your sinfulness, you should not be able to commune with the God of the universe. You should be separated from him. But thank God that we have Jesus who died on our behalf and who God uses as his full expression of love to bring us back into life with him. Because otherwise we couldn't live with him. Man, but we certainly can't live without him. Sit in that truth, pray over it, meditate on it, and also know this, 
that life will lead you into navigating both sides of that paradox of his presence, that you can't live with him and you can't live without him as you seek to follow Jesus. So know that that paradox is going to be part of your life with Christ. And then finally, recover your true identity as a worshiper of God. You were made for so much more than a life of temporary happiness and respectability, a life of comfortability and, and, and someone who's, you know, who's maybe thought of well by your community. Ask the Lord what it means for you to be a true worshiper. It's deep inside of you. He's made you to be a worshiper. Ask him to uncover that. Someone who is heavily focused on making the name of God known and loved by a watching world. So my encouragement to us as a, as a community of faith, let's live in our identity as renewed worshipers. And let's discover together that paradox of his presence by seeking together his glory in prayer. So let's pray here.